Hey, just before I get started on my message today, um, don't miss the opportunities to share with people about Lent. Um, I had a great opportunity at work a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've all, all of the desks at work are the adjustable height ones because we're sort of all ergonomically focused and everything else. And one of the girls that has a desk near mine stood up and she goes, oh, it's so good to be to be able to stand up straight. And I said, yeah, I, I gave up standing straight until Easter. That's why it's called Lent. <laughs> um, which actually led into a really interesting conversation in our little section of the office about Lent. And she goes, oh, you're giving anything else up for Lent, Andrew? And I said, yeah, actually I am. I'm giving up social media. So Facebook and Instagram. And one of the other girls has gone, that's such a good idea. And she started talking about how she you know, struggled with you know, the pointlessness of trying to give up certain types of food and, and everything else. And I said, yeah, my wife's given up butter for Lent. And they're like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> but it's, it's about you know, giving up things that are going to make your life interesting. But the interesting thing is, like, during this last week, the, the, the same girl has gone, so how's the no social media going? What are you doing with all your free time? So we're able to talk about that. So it's just, it just amazing just how a simple dad joke led to a really interesting series of conversations. Um, who knows how it'll, how it'll go? Found out during the week that same girl went to Bayside Christian College, so... So they're going, okay, we'll see, we'll see where this heads, Lord, and just, um, yeah, how it goes. But on to my message, Saved by Grace. I'm going to start off with a bit of a story um, about last Saturday, not Saturday yesterday, Saturday the week before. Um, I had tossed up the idea of um, putting a, a little video clip up there of you know, a kid throwing all their toys out of the cot. Because that's what I did last Saturday. My toys were out of the cot. Um, last game of the season, uh, I'd been... Uh, cricket season, I play cricket still, unfortunately. Um, and... Had a, had, a, had a very frustrating season um, where... I didn't think that I was getting a fair go from the captain of our side. Um, I was doing all the right things. Uh, I put my hand up, I'll organise the drinks when we're playing a home game, make sure, no, go down to the rooms, grab the drinks container, get the cordial, put the ice in and the water and everything. Organise that, no. Had a horrible mishap going to one game uh, with two very large cordial containers in the back seat of the car and one of them tipped over and didn't seal as tightly as it should have. So I finished up with cordial all over the back seat of my car. All, all of those, those little things and I thought, I'm really hard to know. Did the scoreboard entered it all into the system where you've got to put the results on the computer system each, each week? So I did all that doing all the right things, being as helpful as I possibly could. And I realised on one of my walks after Saturday that I did that because 
that was the deal that I had in my head. Trouble is, the captain hadn't signed up to that deal. So I didn't get a bowl and I batted number 11, unless we were playing short and then I get to, got to bat number 10. For those of you that don't understand cricket, that's sort of the last places to bat. So essentially I was a specialist scorer and drinks provider. Um, that was my role in the side. And I got home on Saturday night and I just said to my wife, that is it, I'm done. This captain has forced me one step closer to retirement and probably to the point, had that conversation with the president. He goes, well, hold on, don't make that decision. He's, he's very encouraging. And it was like, oh... And she goes, no, you need to go down because there was an event at the cricket club last Saturday night. I, go, I don't want to go. Captain's going to be there. <laughs> and I don't know what I'll say to him. She goes, go down. Stop being a sook. Well, okay. So I went down there and it was all fine and everything else. But I thought, no, I need to reflect on this. So I was reflecting on it when I went for a walk on Sunday. And God was really, God, no, I don't always chat to God on my walks. Sometimes I just walk and sometimes I just listen to music while I walk. But this time I was chatting to God and he was like, so how's this manipulation by service working for you? And it's like, yeah, it is a bit like that, isn't it? It was like, I do, this, I do the right thing. And then the captain will do the right thing by me. That's how life works. That's how it's meant to work, isn't it? We do good things and good things happen. It didn't happen, so I felt like the deal had been broken by somebody who hadn't made the deal. But anyway, that was where my sort of thought processes fell down. Now, the world talks about there's a, there's a thing called the principle of reciprocity. I used to do a lot of negotiation training. And the principle of reciprocity means that if I give you something in a negotiation, you are morally obligated to give me something back. But it's a bit of a game of chicken as to who's going to give first. You know, it can be expressed as you no know, quid pro quo, something for something. If you want the rough Latin translation of what quid, quid pro quo means, or the concept of karma, which it's surprising how many people are familiar with the concept of karma. Um, you know, if you want to get something, you've got to give something first. You know? Now, I don't think I'm unique in that. Hands up if you think, yeah... When I want something, I usually realise I've got to give something first rather than just expecting the other person to be the first mover. Yeah, yeah. it's most of us. We'll go, yeah, well, let's, let's give something here. Every, as I did some research on this concept of karma in particular, pretty much I thought it was just a Hindu thing. But no, it's pretty much every Eastern religion has the concept of karma embedded in it. 
Um, no. Good things happen to people who do good things and bad things, well, you get the picture. Even today in our little corner of Australia, even those with no faith system, no belief in an afterlife or a God of any kind, the guys and girls at the cricket club, the soccer club, will talk about the karma train. (laughs) Or make statements like, what goes around comes around. Familiar sort of sounding statements. It's a central tenet of secular humanism, if you look at that. That if we can remove all of the systemic barriers, the entrenched inequalities, the inherent privileges, then life will be fundamentally fair. This is where secular humanism and Christianity differ. Christianity doesn't go, if you remove all the barriers, life will be fair. Christianity goes, you cannot remove all of the the barriers because we are inherently sinful. Sort of should have given a warning. I'm going to use a couple of old-fashioned words today that don't get used very often, like sin and hell. (laughs) So, trigger warning. We see glimpses of this concept of, of what you know, give and you'll receive um, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Job. You look at Job's friends, the reason he had bad things happening to him, according to Job's three friends, was because he'd done something bad. You know, the message of Job is that that wasn't the case and his friends were in big trouble because they had assumed that. Um, but even in Judaism, to deal with sins that they'd committed, they had to sacrifice an animal. You know, I'm spending my time with my, in my Bible study at the moment, looking at the book of Numbers and the book of Romans, which is like two, <laughs> two contrasts. They read about Numbers and all about grace and, and everything there. <laughs> Reading the book of Numbers... I think during the week there was one chapter that was just all about the sacrifices that they had to make at a couple of the festivals that they held. And it was like, seriously, it was like 70, I lost, I just sort of sat there and added it up and it's like, that's a lot of livestock that are going to die because you have stuffed up. And that was, no, that was the work of the law for the Old Testament people. The work of the law was, you sin, an animal has to die so that you can get back into right relationship with God. Unless there is the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And that was the process that had been put in place. What the Old Testament proves categorically is that it's a process that just isn't effective. People can never be good enough to not have to do that sacrifice, to have to keep making those sacrifices.
that this concept of the work of the law has changed a little bit over time. And this is sort of something to recognise as we, as we look at this concept of saved by grace. The works that are referred to in the New Testament is these sacrifices. So when it says we're not, sa- we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by sa- making sacrifices. We're not saved by sacrificing animals. We're saved by God's grace. And I'll explain that in a bit more, more detail. Now the idea of works, we're not saved by works, is more around good works. And sort of those two concepts have sort of morphed together a little bit. But I think it's important to recognise that what the New Testament talks about is actually being saved from having to make sacrifices every time we stuff up. Jesus came and he turned all that on his head. He initiated something totally contrary to all of that. And we see this in the writing of Paul, uh, the, the New Testament writer in the early second half of the first century, when he was writing a letter to a church in the town of Ephesus, which is on the coast of Turkey. So, one of, on my bucket list of places to go to, see where the church was in Ephesus. You've been there, haven't you, Caleb? Did you, you, Caleb's been there. So, next one. So let, let's have a look at, at, at what he wrote. This is, this is the second chapter of the, the letter to Ephesians, starting at verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins... He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Thanks. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. If you want to look at some of the older translations, it's like, For we are saved by grace, not by works, lest any person should boast. Nobody can say, I am so good, I have worked my way into heaven. I have sacrificed more animals than anybody else on the planet. And as a result of that, I've made my way into heaven. Nobody can say that. What they can say is, I was, and this is what Paul says in some of his other letters, I am the worst sinner of all sinners. But despite that, and because of God's grace, I am in right relationship with God. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of everything that he has done. 
Not us, it's him. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, the sacrifices we've made, so none of us can boast about it. And then in verse 10, for we are what, and I love the way the NLT puts this, we are God's masterpiece. Turn to the person next to you and say, we are God's masterpiece. Look at, the pers- look at the person when you're telling them that. Look at them and go, you are a masterpiece. Now, how, much, how often have you considered yourself to be a masterpiece? Or do you tend to see yourself more as a masterpiece? I know I'm sort of in the masterpiece sort of category a lot of the time. I look at myself in the mirror and go, oh. But that's not how God sees us. God sees us as his masterpiece. He created us anew. Say that to the person next to you. You are new. Enunciate that clearly. You are new. So, we, who? We, can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Flick, can you flick back to the previous slide, thanks? No? It's not a reward for the good things we have done. But good things still matter. We don't get saved by doing good things. And if you get nothing else out of today, walk away with this. We don't get saved by doing good things. We do good things because we got saved. It is not the mechanism for our salvation. It's the product of our salvation. And the only reason we would do good things, the only reason we would do good things is because we've had a realisation on how much God loves us. And there is no other way to appropriately respond but to do the things that he's asked us to do. We don't get into right relationship with God by being obedient to him. We're obedient because we're in right relationship. So much of how people try to live out their Christianity is backwards. We sang the song earlier about God's kingdom is backwards. And it really is. It's not about working things out manipulating God by our good deeds. It's about God freely, generously and kindly out of his love and grace and mercy for us, reaching out to us and going, here you go. Here 
Here's a free gift. And a free gift is not a gift if you have to earn it. No, we don't get presents from our family because we've been good during the year. We get presents from our family, Christmas and birthdays sort of thing, because we have a relationship with them. As a parent, we give gifts to our children, not because they've been good kids during the year, because otherwise they'd get nothing. (laughs) Instead, we give them gifts because they're our children. And God is exactly the same. I've seen it over and over again where people try and manipulate kids, particularly parents who've been divorced. Remember my son playing cricket with a, a young kid whose parents are divorced and each year they would try and outgive each other. So like, you know, mum would buy him a $300 cricket bat so dad had to buy him a $500 cricket bat. Look at the price of cricket bats. Nuts, two and a half thousand bucks for a cricket bat. I suppose if you've got talent, it matters. Paul wrote a lot more about this concept of being saved by grace rather than saved by our good deeds in the book of Romans. More of that later. That's your homework. So what does it mean to be saved? we're saved by grace? No, this whole concept of being saved by grace has been debated. No, a lot of people go, oh, it's been debated since the Reformation, 500 years. It's actually been debated for about 1,600 years. Back in the 400s, <laughs> two gentlemen by the name of Augustine and Pelagius Pelagius was a gentleman who'd been born in England and was based in Rome. Uh, And he was just aggrieved by how sloppy the Christian life was for a lot of people. How much they had sort of slipped into slack Christianity as he saw it. So he thought there had to be some more. So he wanted to make it a lot more rules and works based. And Augustine has gone, well, hang on. (laughs) Well, and there was a big debate about it then. Luther reignited that debate uh, in the Reformation. It was one of the key things that he was wanting to uh, get the church to reevaluate, and that is that we are saved by grace. Now, he'd he'd come to the realisation that some of the translations in the Bible that they were working with at the time, weren't great. You know, the, the Vulgate version of the Bible, which was a Latin translation that was done around the 450, 500 AD. Um, the guy that had translated it into Latin had taken some Greek words, a Greek word particularly uh, metanoia, which mean, we translate now as repentance. He'd taken it as penance. So there was a whole works thing based around that that he just gone, 
no. And Luther's going, well, hang on, if it just means repentance, then it's a totally different concept to the works of, you know, say, say seven Hail Marys and put some money in the poor box. And even more recently, uh, during the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, coined the term sloppy grace. Where he's just gone, no, this concept of grace just did his head in. It's like Christians have just become slack. And we see it now, still. People go, oh, but we're saved by grace. I can just behave as I like. And you think, yes, yes, you can. But is that a reflection of what God's done for you? We'll talk about that in a little bit. A little bit more later. So what are we saved from? As one theologian put it, this is, this is why I like to summarise things rather than expressing things as theologians put it, uh, the judgement of the last day, this is what we say from, the judgement of the last day declaring where we will spend eternity. Put it simply, what we are saved from is the consequences of our sin. But hell. C.S. Lewis, I think, summed it up really, really well. C.S. Lewis, in, in, in one of his books, I can never remember which one it is, says, sin is God is man continually, continually telling God to go away? No, I've got this God, I want to do it myself. That's what sin is, essentially. Hell is God granting that request. God going away. want it more simply the consequences that's in the karma train what grace is the karma train has been derailed no what goes around doesn't come around what comes around is totally undeserved Christ was substituted in our place so as a result of our telling God to go away Jesus said, I'll go in their place. So when Jesus was on the cross, God went away. And Jesus cries out for the first time in his existence. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the consequence of all of our sin, carried it on the cross, and dealt with it. Not because he had to, not because he had to deal with the Father. because he loved us John 3.16 classic God verse God so loved the world he gave his only son 
whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God was substituted in our place. He died for our sins. We received his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ who lived a sinless life becomes ours. Our sins become his. Deal of the century. Deal of a lifetime. Deal of eternity. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. I can't think of a better recycling system. Takes our garbage, gives us his righteousness. Sounds like a good deal to me. The concept of grace, when you sit down and look at it from a natural, logical perspective, is totally absurd. Who'd come up with a deal like that? What's in that for Jesus? Pain, suffering, shame, guilt, abandonment, you name it, all on him. What's on us? Freedom, liberty. Grace, mercy, love, righteousness, the ability to have a relationship with our creator. Contrast that with the Muslim faith. Muslims have got a really idea, a really interesting idea of how this works out. And it's much more aligned to how most people think. As far as the average Muslim is concerned, at the end of, of their life, Allah will look at all of their actions, weigh up the good that they've done and the bad that they've done. If the good weighs, if the good outweighs the bad, then they're in. It's a simple balance of the scales. Christianity, on the other hand, just goes, doesn't matter how much bad you've done, it's just the good of what Jesus has done outweighs it all. But there's a catch. The grace of God has all the sin we have and will commit. I don't know about you, but when Jesus died, I hadn't committed any sins. I'm pretty sure nobody here had either. All of that is outweighed by our belief. That's where the absurdity of the concept of grace kicks in. Like, How can belief outweigh actions? Our belief in what? You know, do we have to memorise the Bible? Maybe that's it. Obey all the Ten Commandments. Maybe that's it. 
No, the belief is really, really simple. Our belief that what Jesus did almost 2,000 years ago is still enough for God to forgive us our sin and restore our relationship with him for all eternity. That's all we need to believe. That what he did was enough. Let's have a look at what Paul wrote earlier on in his letter to the church in Ephesus. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us. This is not stingy. No, this is the grace that he's poured out on us, not the grace that he's dribbled out with an eyedropper. He's poured it out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God's grace has been poured out. His kindness has been showered on us. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, says, People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That's what we need to believe. That Jesus died and was resurrected. That's why Easter is such a crucial celebration for us. Let's not make this coming Easter all about chocolate, all about holidays. Let it be a celebration of Christ's death and his resurrection and the fact that that is all that is required for us to be saved. The writer of Hebrews, another letter in the New Testament, says that Christ died once and for all. So for everybody, and he did it just once, and that is eternally effective. No sacrifices every week. with an additional set at the start of each month and other ones at the crucial, crucial feast days during the year. So, what is our response to that showering of kindness? What is our response to that pouring out of God's grace? Being made right with our Creator... What is our response? Is our response just, cheers God, thanks. I'll just keep living the life that I want to live. Or is our response one of gratitude and appreciation? Paul, later on in his letter to Ephesians, answers this. And he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, 
making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So how do we respond? We love each other. We're patient. We make allowance for each other's faults. We don't throw our toys out of the cot when we don't get our own way. We just go, God, you have done it all. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe that what you have done is enough so that my life will start to change. And God's grace will continue working on it. Like, you know, when you're kneading dough and you're you know, mixing it in and making sure that it's all worked through and all the bubbles are out of the bread and making sure that that's God's grace. We just keep working that through working it through, working it through, allowing God's grace to continue every day working on our life. Strengthening our belief that what he did is enough. We simply can't, we can't just take advantage of God's grace and expect to lead an unchanged life. We do not initiate the exchange, but we do need to participate in it. We need to receive the gift. And many people reject the gift. Jesus took our sin, but we are now we need to allow him to keep it. <laughs> if part of the exchange was here, God, here is my sin. Ooh but I'm particularly fond of that sin. Can I have it back, please? And Jesus doesn't go, no, it's mine now. (laughs) Okay. But then our belief that what he's done is sufficient kicks in again and we can come back to him. But it should leave us as I said, continually becoming more and more like him as we appreciate more and more each day that exchange that's been made. So in summary, to put it as simply as I can, we're not saved by the good things we do, the brownie points we earn with God. But his grace can't leave us unchanged. Good things will flow out of a heart full of gratitude, appreciation and love. As the Apostle John wrote, we love because he, God, first loved us. Let that sink in. We can love simply because he first loved us. If we get a revelation of that love, that love will flow through us into those that we come into contact with. If we don't get a revelation of that love, if we think we have to earn it, if we think we have to work for it, what will come across as we interact with others is Christianity is all about striving, not about resting, not about receiving, 